Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosli. The Communist Party of China just celebrated its centennial, and it was quite the affair. Our top story this hour, the Chinese Communist Party puts up a grand extravaganza as it celebrates its 100th founding anniversary. A 100th birthday marked with fanfare, military precision and tens of thousands of adoring supporters. 70,000 people gathering with precision-like performance, really sending this official message to not only the Chinese people but to the world. The CCP has been in power for more than seven decades, and it has big plans for the future. Today, a hundred years on from its founding, the Communist Party of China is still in its prime and remains as determined as ever to achieve lasting greatness for the Chinese nation. And the party doesn't plan to let anyone get in its way. At the same time, the Chinese people will never allow any foreign forces to bully, oppress and enslave us. Anyone who tries to do so will find themselves in a collision course with a great wall of steel forged by 1.4 billion people. How has the CCP maintained power for so long? Does it represent the risk to the liberal world order that the West seems to think it does? Are the party's days numbered? Oh. Hi, Rana. Hi, Elmira. Nice to speak. Here to help us answer these questions is Rana Mitter. Rana, are those books or files behind you? Combination thereof. It's basically like the kind of leaning tower of documents. But this basically that that that's the raw material for my new book. Rana is the director of the China Center at the University of Oxford and a professor of the history and politics of modern China. He joins us from Oxford, England. Rana, the CCP has ruled continuously for 72 years. That essentially makes it the second longest ruling party in the world. Um, If you take a look, only North Korea's Workers' Party has been in power longer. So first, I want to look at how the CCP has managed this. You've highlighted the party's Marxist-Leninist ideology. How did this ideology set the CCP up for success? I think that the Marxist-Leninist ideology, which underlies uh, the Chinese Communist Party, has produced two qualities, one of which might be expected, one of which is less expected. So the expected quality, you might say, is ruthlessness. And I think I can say that not as a value judgment, although it is a value judgment, but actually as an objective statement. The reason being that if you look at Lenin, the uh, revolutionary figure from whom Leninist thought is taken, it's very clear that he believes that the absolute use of coercion and force and tactics that give pretty much no quarter to your opponent are essential for political control. He was, of course, writing in the context of the Russian Revolution, the Russian Civil War of the late teens, early 20s. And that, you know, that sort of framework has continued to be very, very central, even as the Chinese Communist Party has moved from being this sort of small gathering of intellectuals in the 1920s to being this behemoth, which controls a quarter of humanity in the 2020s, that Leninist uh, strand has never uh, been removed. So that, you know, really kind of ruthless quality is what you might expect if you know something about Lenin. 
But what you might not expect so much, depending on your reading of uh, the, the Soviet past, is the other factor that I think has enabled the Communist Party of China, as you say, to last for 72 years and counting in government and 100 years as an organization. And that's flexibility. Now, that's not a term that you necessarily hear associated with an authoritarian party state. And, you know, China is very much an authoritarian party state. But actually, if you look at the way in which its central policies have changed over that century, you'll see how much it's been willing to change. Let's just take economics, because one of the things that is brought up over and over again is that whatever you think of their, their tactics, the Chinese Communist Party has managed to lead China to becoming the second biggest economy in the world. And to do that, it's gone through a whole variety of phases. When Mao Zedong, Chairman Mao, first took power in 1949, essentially the economic model was pretty much taken off the shelf from the Soviet Union, and there were plenty of Soviet advisors. And then that changed over time after the horrors of the Great Leap Forward famine, which the party brought upon itself in the 1950s through not looking at what was happening in reality on the, the ground, causing millions of people to starve. There was then in the early 60s a reintroduction of what you might even call kind of miniature sprouts of capitalism. Uh, those were then stamped out during the Cultural Revolution. But then fast forward to the 1980s, and then you get the beginning of the trajectory we see today, which is essentially a communist party which implements a capitalist revolution. So nobody would look at one political party, particularly one calling itself communist, and associate itself naturally with all of those different economic models. And yet that ability over time to change, sometimes just in the nick of time, is something that I think has sustained the party over more than seven decades. As Rana notes, the CCP has survived on a combination of ruthlessness and flexibility, but not always in equal measure. In 1989, massive anti-government protests in Tiananmen Square captured global attention. For the first time in huge numbers, the ordinary men and women of Beijing, the old and the young, professors and taxi drivers, have joined the student protests, lending their support to what has now taken on all the appearances of a peaceful popular uprising against the oppressiveness of communist rule. The CCP eventually responded with brutal force. In China, the will of the people has been thwarted by the will of the people's government. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. One official government report characterized the massacre as a glorious victory over counter-revolutionary turmoil. But hardly anyone in this city thinks there's much glory in shooting down unarmed civilians. Rana says this changed the trajectory of the country's politics. Again, it's worth just doing a little bit of history on this. Uh, the decade that led up to 1989, the 1980s, was actually one of the freest, one of the most open decades within the period of the Communist Party's rule. Deng Xiaoping, of course, the paramount leader of China who essentially managed to wrest power um, after, after Mao had died and his successor had then come into, uh, into place. But Deng Xiaoping essentially becomes the paramount leader of China from 1978 onwards and allows a real reversal of many of the assumptions of the Cultural Revolution, which had traumatized China for a, a decade previous to that. So in other words, instead of mouthing ideological slogans, uh, Deng Xiaoping was saying, well, instead, you should go back to, and he used a, a quite long-standing Chinese phrase, but he used it in a new way. The phrase is shu shu tiu shu, seek truth from facts. And again, this sounds a bit gnomic, but really it's a statement that, look, 
we're back to the days of science. We're back to the days of empirical research. If social science comes out with solutions that tell us things that we find uncomfortable, maybe that markets work better than command economies in creating wealth, well, okay, maybe we have to deal with that rather than saying it's an ideological deviation. So that sort of change of attitude was very important in the 1980s. And it opened up a whole much wider range of reconsiderations, not just of economics, not just of science, but also actually the whole way that China should be. And then, of course, the confrontation came. So 3rd and 4th of June, 1989, Deng Xiaoping and others in the leadership, from what we can gather, decided that enough was enough. The demonstrations were not going away. They were making China look bad. And the tanks rolled in. It was not the most, it was not the highest number of people who had been killed in an action by the Communist Party. That would be, you know, many of the, the confrontations that happened during the Cultural Revolution, where tens of thousands were, were killed at, uh, at times. But it did provide a really stark end to what had been a period of real openness, a real willingness to sort of think about how the outside world and the Western world might influence China. And although China has had more liberal periods even since then, it's created a sort of it created a chill within the Chinese Communist Party that they would never again allow free thinking and speaking out to put the party in a position where people will be gathering literally in front of the Forbidden City and the party could not do anything about it other than clear them off the off the street. So it was a deeply, deeply traumatizing episode for the families and friends of those many who were killed. But it also, in some ways, hardened the hearts of many of the leadership of the Communist Party at that time as well. Tiananmen was obviously a case of a very harsh repression, but the CCP hasn't relied just on repression for 72 years. And we we talked about some of the free market reforms that it has used to strengthen its legitimacy. What changes has the party implemented in order to maintain popular support? I think it's one of the the puzzles, you might say, of geopolitics in the present moment that not only the West needs to work out, but also China itself spends a whole lot of time asking itself, which is how does China do it? You know, what is the the secret sauce, if that's the right way to uh, to put it, that holds today's China together? I would say there has been no political entity, certainly in modern history, maybe the whole of history, that has brought together four factors in the way that China has to create a unique kind of political system, both at home and abroad. One element of it is the one that most of us from the outside think of first in terms of thinking about China, and I'll say it, and that's authoritarianism. But if it was just repressing people, and it does a lot of that, let's be clear, but if it was just repressing people, then actually that wouldn't be enough. And the other factors make the difference. And for me, they are consumerism, And bearing in mind that this is a sociological term, really, in other words, the creation of higher living standards, what we might call a middle class lifestyle. You have to remember the old Soviet Union back in the Cold War, they tried this as well and it didn't work out. You know, basically, uh, American uh, holidaymakers were jetting off to the Caribbean for holidays while, you know, the Soviet holidaymakers were making do with little kind of huts on the the beach in in Bulgaria. Uh, People in uh, West Germany were driving Mercedes. Uh, people in East Germany are driving Trabants. And while there are people who love their Trabbies even now, you have to say it probably wasn't a fair fight. 
Now let's think about the kind of lifestyle that China's uh, um, system is offering an awful lot of the emergent middle class today. Uh, they've got uh, mobile phones. I know that in your previous work, Almira, you've talked to, I think, one of the founders of Xiaomi, one of the biggest um, uh, mobile phone manufacturers in the world. You may have heard of a little app called TikTok. Quite a lot of people seem to be rather keen on it, not least my teenage daughter, I have to say. You know, this is an example of how actually China has to some extent cracked the idea of how you make the products of the um, authoritarian system actually rather attractive to an awful lot of people. So mentioning that it's not just Chinese teenagers on TikTok reminds me that there's then global ambition, globalization. China now has a blueprint about how it wants to influence the world, not just its own country. Vehicles such as the well-known Belt and Road Initiative, infrastructure investment, now turning a lot more actually in the direction of both uh, health technology, vaccines against COVID and so forth, and uh, digital footprints, in other words, uh, putting the uh, the framework in for 5G. That's where a lot of that um, globalization is going. And then that leads us to the final, but I think a really important factor, China's ability to use technology to make its case. Now, there are arguments, I'll put forward my view, but there are arguments about how much China really has been an innovator in technology. It seems to me, as an amateur on these questions, that the very kind of, you know, innovative first tier innovation you find in Silicon Valley, you don't find it in that many other places. But second tier innovation, being able to take existing technology and do some really impressive things with it, that is something that China has actually been putting a lot of effort and time into and producing some impressive results in selected areas of technology. So being able to use that technology with both military and civil applications, putting it into uh, the consumerist side of its proposition to the wider population, using its global reach to actually talk to the world about how that works, and then being really hardline about, and this comes from the Chinese Communist Party, that is absolutely going to accept no dissent to its uh, legitimacy to rule. That is a very unusual combination. As I say, I think historically unprecedented. And that's, I think, what has enabled China, for good or ill, to be in the highly dominant position it is in terms of the overall top table of geopolitics today. So this model that you've outlined has clearly helped the CCP, but another factor in the party's survival seems to be its ability to create a shared national story. And part of that story is World War II and China's role in the conflict. How has the CCP used it to shape national identity? Now, I have to say, I have spoken to well-educated uh, American and British friends who, first of all, are not very clear that China was in World War II in the first place, and second, then ask which side was it on, uh, which um, I have to say, actually, of course, is a trick question, because those who know the history of that period will know that there was um, a Chinese um, collaborationist government, as in France, that worked with the Japanese. But I should say that the significant forces, the nationalist government of China at that time, under the then leader Chiang Kai-shek, and the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong did in fact basically lead the only major resistance in Asia to the Japanese empire in the first few years of the war until the Americans and British came along at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Uh, it is a, uh, uh, I think, uh, how can I put it, a, a tendency of Westerners to think that the war in Asia only began at Pearl Harbor when they turned up, but the Chinese would point out that they had been fighting the Japanese for four and a half years previously and holding half a million plus Japanese down. 
So this was a highly, highly traumatic experience. And in a way, it paved the way for the rise to power of the Chinese Communist uh, Party, which could take the sort of shattered China that was there in 1945, fight a civil war against their former nationalist allies and eventually triumph in 1949. But fast forward to the present era, because something that's a bit unusual in that story is that during most of the era of Chairman Mao, the 1940s up to the 1970s, Oddly enough, the People's Republic, Communist China, didn't talk very much about this experience of World War II. Yes, they talked about the role of the Chinese Communist Party in um, opposing the, the Japanese, fighting against them, guerrilla warfare out in the countryside, all important stuff. But they didn't mention the most embarrassing fact from their point of view, which was that, in fact, it was Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists, the Kuomintang or Kuomintang, uh, who actually did the vast majority of the set-piece battle fighting. And that began to change in the 1980s and 90s. It suddenly became in China more permissible to mention that the old enemy, the nationalists who had been defeated in the civil war and had to flee to Taiwan, actually had done a pretty good job in fighting the Japanese in many ways. And the reasons that the story changed were multiple. One was, um, you know, a sort of quite relevant one today, which is the desire to reunify with Taiwan and hoping that being a bit nicer to the uh, uh, nationalists who had fled there might encourage them to come back to, uh, to, the, to the homeland. But actually more than that, I think it was to do with disillusionment after the Cultural Revolution, a horrific, you know, turbulent experience that may have killed as many as two million people. People after that wanted something unifying, a story that would bring them together rather than tearing them apart on the altar of class warfare. And the story of World War II, just as in the United States, just as in Britain, turned out to be a powerful element, you know, saying the evil Japanese in this version of history invaded. And it doesn't matter if you're a communist or Kuomintang nationalist, we both fought back against the, the Japanese. And that story over the last few decades has made itself more and more into a kind of unifying story in every aspect of Chinese society. So that's why World War II, you know, for generations who have no memory of it, you know, even their grandparents were kids at the time, still has tremendous power in China today because it's a really rare example of a foreign country invading China through no fault of China's own and China successfully fighting back. And you might understand why in today's very turbulent geopolitics with the outside world, China wants to hear stories like that. The CCP's focus on World War II not only fosters patriotic sentiment at home, it also highlights China's cooperation with allied forces and positions the country as a founder of the post-1945 world order. A 70-gun salute to mark 70 years since the end of World War II. A decisive moment in Chinese history commemorated on a suitably epic scale. During a speech at a massive military parade in 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping celebrated China's central role in the conflict. This great triumph re-established China as a major country in the world and won the Chinese people respect of all peace-loving people around the world. Rana says this narrative about the 20th century offers valuable insights into China's position in the 21st. I think it was February of last year, 2020, uh, I think one of the last trips I managed to make overseas from the UK where I lived before the pandemic hit and all travel shut down was to Munich, to the annual Munich Security Conference. And there was a speech made by the foreign minister of China, Wang Yi, in which he pointed out something that actually Chinese leaders have been saying for a long time, which is that 1945, the end of World War II, 
was also the moment at which China was not just any signatory, but the first ever signatory to the United Nations Charter, which is factually correct. Why on earth would this be a significant thing to say? Because even a generation or two ago, the story that China told about its point of origin, today's China, the PRC, is 1949. In other words, Chairman Mao's victory uh, over his nationalist Guomindang opponents and the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And don't get me wrong, that's still a tremendously important story. We're speaking in the week of the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. That 1949, year zero, has not gone away. But there's an additional and very important uh, alternative starting point being put forward, and that is 1945. Now, 1945, again, sounds very mainstream to most Westerners because, you know, Americans, Brits, Germans, French, whatever, Japanese, think of that as the end of World War II and the beginning of the global order that we still have with us today. China signing on for that is basically a signal saying, yeah, you know what? China was there too. We own this order as well, and therefore we have rights when it comes to seeing how that order, the United Nations, the World Health Organization, World Trade Organization, whatever it might be, is to be understood. You can't cut us out of that order. However, to do that, there is a piece of historical sleight of hand, because, of course, the China that signed that United Nations Charter was, of course, the China of Chiang Kai-shek, not the China of Mao Zedong. Now, for absolute historical accuracy, just to show that we dot the I's and cross the T's on this podcast, there was one communist um, delegate, a man named Dong Biwu, who eventually became the president of the, the PRC many decades later, who was present in that delegation. So the Chinese communists did have their, their man in there. But overall, this was one of the last achievements of nationalist China, not the first achievement of communist China. And therefore, it's really indicative that the Chinese government today, the Chinese Communist Party, thinks this is such an important date to tell its story about itself that it incorporates that particular event while sliding over the fact that the guy holding the pen was not a member of the Communist Party, but a member of the Nationalist Party. The CCP's new origin story for modern China doesn't sit well with the West. While the advanced economies have benefited considerably from China's economic rise, they expected this process to lead the country towards democracy. China's admission to the World Trade Organization in 2001 was supposed to be a turning point. By joining the WTO, China is not simply agreeing to import more of our products. It is agreeing to import one of democracy's most cherished values, economic freedom. The more China liberalizes its economy, the more fully it will liberate the potential of its people. 20 years later, China is nowhere near becoming a liberal democracy, and it has no plans to change that. But it is the world's second largest economy, and an increasingly formidable challenger to the U.S. and its Western allies. All of them are increasingly anxious. Leaders of the wealthiest democracies have agreed on a plan to counter China's global influence. The first face-to-face -face G7 summit since the pandemic began has showcased a newfound Western unity. In that final communique, there was specific wording and language targeting China, um, calling on the country to respect the human rights in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. There were also renewed calls for reinvestigating the origins of the COVID-19 virus. China's response to Western criticism has been to insist that the days when the global decisions were dictated by a small group of countries are long gone. But what does China hope will come next? Rana, despite China's efforts to promote its peaceful rise, many countries are convinced that it's seeking to upend the liberal international order. Are these fears warranted? 
in what ways is China actually trying to reshape the global system? So China is, I think, doing what I would call a Schrodinger's reshaping of the international order, by which it is both reshaping it and seeking to preserve it at the same time. In other words, China, I think, is not trying to overturn the international order from first principles. And that's different from what it was trying to do, uh, let's say, 50, 60 years ago under Chairman Mao. Because I think that Chairman Mao, who was not in any way embarrassed to call himself a revolutionary, wanted, just as he overturned order at home in the Cultural Revolution, would have ideally wanted a global order to be overturned uh, as well. Uh, one statement that Chairman Mao made during the Cultural Revolution was, uh, I think, uh, along the following lines, the situation is chaos, everything is excellent. Let's just say those are not words that I can imagine that his successor, but whatever, for uh, Xi Jinping, would ever say in his life. In other words, thinking of the international situation today as being in chaos is not something that today's Chinese Communist Party do want, because so many bits of it work to their advantage. Think about the World Health Organization. Think about the United Nations. These are places where China now you know, pays for a lot of the dues, to be fair. I mean, they are doing that in, in many cases, but also, of course, gains great influence and advantage in, in doing so. What they want, I think, is to re-inhabit and redefine the existing order in ways that suit China's interest. And to take one example that's you know always brought up because it's so on the money and it's so uh, uh, contentious, human rights. So China states that it's very keen on promoting human rights with the United Nations, United Nations, but it wants to emphasize its definition of human rights, which is much more about collective economic goods, you know, everyone needing to eat, everyone having enough clothes on their back, and underplaying the individual civil liberties, which is what most people would in the liberal world want to stress. So they would say, same world order, but different definition. But beyond that, there is also a further tendency, which is also to try and create an order that has much more to do with something new that China wants to put forward in the in the world. And so you can take examples such as the AIIB, uh, the Asia International Infrastructure Bank, which is actually in some ways quite similar to Western development banks, but is run from Beijing, or the ongoing attempts to try and create what's sometimes called um, internet sovereignty. In other words, the idea that China and other nation states should have much more rights than they do under the current uh, international uh, framework to define how the internet is used both within particular societies and how the internet is used globally in terms of the interests of those societies. Those are, I think, real changes to the global uh, regimes that we have at the moment. And China, as I say, in a slightly sort of Schrodinger's cat way, is looking to push both the line that it's the most fervent upholder of today's order, along with, I think, sort of slowly but surely creating other structures that put forward agendas that are outside what we might call the post-1945 international order. Okay, but these tactics do seem to threaten the liberal world order, which the U.S. has always led. Well, I think that's uh, I think it's entirely right that there is absolutely a conflict of values and a conflict of norms between the two sides. But it is worth remembering that perhaps we become spoiled by the fact that those of us of a, of a certain age see the Cold War, you know, the, the original one, way back in the rearview mirror. The post-1945 order at its start was always a bipolar system in which two different systems basically fought over the same territory. I've, I've called it in one uh, article I've written, uh, the Civil War of the Enlightenment. In some ways, I don't think the Chinese case is exactly parallel. I'll, I'll just explain why. A question that people quite often ask about Chinese intentions is whether or not there is a Chinese ideology 
that is looking to, you know, basically displace liberal ideology around the world. Actually, I don't think that's what the Chinese are up to for, for two reasons. One is sort of ideological and one is practical. The ideological one, the clue is in the way that they describe their own system at home in China. And bearing in mind, that, you know, that's big enough in itself because that's a quarter of, of the human uh, species, uh, which is within uh, within that, that territory, which is the idea that they're practicing socialism with Chinese characteristics, which looks a lot like authoritarian capitalism to many of us. But, you know, fair enough, you call it what you want. But the point of something that is with Chinese characteristics is by definition, it's special to that country. You know, you can't reproduce it elsewhere. You can't have socialism with Chinese characteristics as such in Ethiopia or Argentina or uh, or Vietnam. And so to that extent, I think there's a sort of self-definition that is still saying, look, we're actually different, not the same from other places. So what does that mean then about global Chinese influence, which is undoubted? I think it's much more oriented around a set of preferences than it is a type of ideology. In other words, having international military, economic, and cultural influence that basically means that the world is easier for China to do what China wants, which is to keep its own one-party rule stable at home. While external conditions matter for keeping one-party rule stable in China, internal conditions might be even more important. It's the beginning of a new era in Chinese politics, the era of Xi Jinping thought. Since taking office in 2012, President Xi Jinping has worked to strengthen the party and its position in society and the economy. But Xi has also centralized power in his own hands. President Xi Jinping's name and political ideology are now written into the party's constitution that makes Xi Jinping the country's most powerful leader since Mao Zedong, founder of the People's Republic. It's unclear, though, what this means for the country, but there is no doubt it allows Xi Jinping to tighten his grip on power. Mr. Xi tells delegates that his political philosophy will help build a modern, prosperous China, and he reads out its unwieldy title, fought on socialism with Chinese characteristics for a new era. At the same time, Xi has ramped up repression. Members of the Chinese legislature, the National People's Congress, have overwhelmingly endorsed sweeping and controversial new security laws for Hong Kong. The bill, which now passes to China's senior leadership, has caused deep concern among those who say it could end Hong Kong's unique status. And under Xi's rule, human rights abuses have escalated. Researchers in Australia have identified and mapped more than 380 suspected detention facilities in Xinjiang, that northwestern part of China where the government has interned hundreds of thousands, possibly more than a million Muslim minorities, including the Uyghurs. Rana warns that this autocratic turn could end up undermining the CCP's legitimacy. I think that it's absolutely unarguable that there has been strong centralization of power in both the person of Xi Jinping and the institutions and agencies of the party over which he presides. Even 10 or 15 years ago, there was a move within the party state system by his predecessors, Jiang Zemin, to some extent, Hu Jintao, to move towards what you might call state and government bodies, the state council, state council being one example of, uh, of that, that would basically take away aspects of governance from the party as such. It was always a slightly odd division because, of course, the party and the state have always been entwined in, in communist China, but it was a gesture for a kind of separation. It's been an absolute reverse gear in the last decade or so under Xi Jinping, and he has you know, explicitly said the party controls everything you know, southwest, uh, south, north, east, west, uh, wherever you go, the party has to be in control. So he makes no bones about that. What does that do for the question of legitimacy? 
Well, I think that it means that an awful lot more of what happens in the next five years, 10 years, I mean, we're all assuming that next year in 2022, having abolished term limits, Xi Jinping is likely to seek a third term as Secretary General of the Communist Party. And that means as, as long as the economy continues to grow, as long as the five-year plan works out, he will be able to take the credit for what um, China has managed to do at that point, or in terms of its international politics as well. But it also means that he has fewer places to step back and go if things go wrong. Uh, the benefit from the Communist Party's point of view of the collective leadership, as you might say, uh, I mean, there was always a president, of course, and a general secretary, but there were always factions behind that who basically represented different positions. And that may be the case under Xi Jinping, but it's less obvious from the, the outside. So the alternatives on whom to place responsibility are, I think, smaller in number. But the reason why putting a finger in the wind from where we are right now that I think that he's probably likely to um, you know, maintain his position for a while, is that some of the major dangers that face China, and they do exist, are slightly more long-term. Many of those long-term dangers have to do with the economy, which, as Rana points out, is essential to the credibility of China's leadership. While China has recovered strongly from the pandemic, it's facing a demographic crisis that could undermine its long-term economic prospects. China's population is aging rapidly. More people are reaching retirement age, and soon there won't be enough young people to replace them in the workforce. The authorities in China have announced that couples will be allowed to have up to three children, raising the limit from two. China's birth rate has fallen for the fourth year in a row. 12 million babies were born in 2020, short of government expectations. To meet this demographic challenge, the country will need to restructure its economy, but it will be an uphill battle. China says its economy is back on track. Chinese exporters are doing record business. Chinese pharma giants are selling vaccines. It's a win-win story with lots of money flowing in, but scratch the surface and you'll find a glaring crisis. China's slowing economic growth, combined with an increase in repression, raises important questions about the CCP's ability to maintain popular support. So, Rana, on the 100th anniversary, I think it's fair to say that all eyes are on China and China's Communist Party. Um, and certainly there is no lack of commentators and scholars looking to the future of the CCP. A lot of those commentators are predicting the CCP's impending doom. Is it in real danger? I think that the China we see today has a whole variety of economic, environmental and governance issues, some of which I've mentioned. And I think it's also making certain choices, and I'll be explicit, the choice to really kind of clamp down on uh, free expression that I think actually are not going to do it a great deal of good in the longer term. But overall, is the China of today, is the China on the Chinese, of the Chinese Communist Party on, on the way to any kind of sudden collapse? I don't think so. I really don't think so. We can always be wrong. We famously know that many, many people did not spot the Soviet Union's collapse. And of course, amongst those people were the thinkers of the Chinese Communist Party, who to this day go into seminars saying, what did the Soviets get wrong? We absolutely have to make sure we don't do that. So they didn't spot it coming either. But that having been said, many of the fundamentals that were problematic with the Soviet Union, and I've mentioned them before, but just to mention again, the idea that you have to create some kind of lifestyle for the majority of your growing population that they choose to aspire to. Well, on those sorts of measures, I think there's enough going on in China 
not to mean that it's, 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 it's there without any problems, but rather that it will have problems that I suspect it will manage, but it will continue to manage them in ways that I have to say look very problematic to those of us in the liberal world. And you know what? I think the Chinese Communist Party is not going to spend a great deal of time worrying about what we think about that. We may say that's bad, we may say that's good, but the point is that China is going to take a great deal of time to plough its own furrow on these uh, on these issues. Rana, thank you so much. Amira, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast and look forward to maybe talking again. That was Rana Mitter, the director of the China Center at the University of Oxford and the author of China's Good War, How World War II is Shaping a New Nationalism. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. You can also follow us on Twitter by searching for at ProSyn. That's P-R-O-S-Y-N. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosli. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. <laughs>